This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. We have a gospel that deals with our shame. And Lord, shame is something that does often weigh us down, it often keeps us from joy, from flourishing in you. And we thank you that you are a God who meets us in our shame and has the resources to confront our shame, to engage with our shame, to free us from our shame. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your grace and truth clearly this morning. I pray that you would lift burdens that we carry from shame. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be free in Jesus Christ and to flourish in him toward you so lord let us uh, make the most of these few minutes that we have together now uh, searching your word and finding hope in the midst of shame we pray these things in jesus name amen all right well we have over the last three weeks uh, spent a little bit of time trying to think about what shame is in Scripture, trying to distinguish it uh, from guilt. Uh, Guilt and shame may be related to each other at times, but not always the same thing. So we took a little time to try to unpack what Scripture says about what shame is. And then uh, two weeks ago, I walked through Scripture in order to try to leave a feel for the kind of God God is and how His character uh, engages with our shame. And we, we saw throughout Scripture a God who delights to care for those who are weak in various ways. And shame would be a particular, one particular uh, way we could say this. God is the kind of God who delights to care for those who experience shame of various kinds, internal or external, uh, through things that we have done or through things that have been done to us. And uh, we tried to, to get a, a glimpse of who God is in engaging with that. And particularly, we saw how Jesus, uh, we saw how Jesus comes to embody the character of God in caring for those who have shame. That was two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, I was not able to be here last week, but uh, Jeff uh, showed how the cross of Jesus uh, engages and confronts our shame and frees us from shame. So that's where we've been the last three weeks. And this week, I want to do something that may be a little different than what we normally do, a little different than what I normally do, especially. And I want to consider several images from Scripture and apply those directly to our own shame, whatever it is that we may uh, carry around in terms of our own shame. I have said, if you've been a part of other classes that I have taught, that when we engage with Scripture, we want to not simply read Scripture for information about God and truth, but we want to read Scripture for transformation and communion. We want to 
climb into Scripture. We want to live Scripture. We want to experience communion with God as we read Scripture. And so that's what I want to try to do this morning is lay out four significant images from Scripture that I think have application to our shame. And I want to try this morning to apply those things to our shame and to, uh, if we might say, live in Scripture for a few moments together. So I want to ask you, I, uh, and you don't have to raise a hand or anything like this, but I want you to think about this. I want you to think about shame in your own life. I want you to consider, is there anything in your own life that brings shame to you? Is there any kind of shame that you carry around? And this might be shame you carry around because of things that you have done or things that you... uh, this could be something from a, from, a, from a distant past or it could be something from a very near past, something from this week. Are there, is there shame that you yourself carry around with you from things like this that you have done? And also, is there any feelings of shame, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of littleness, feelings of ostracism, feelings of being pushed aside that you carry around with you, perhaps not through things that you yourself have done, but maybe through things that others have done to you. Uh, Sometimes we as human beings carry around shame in, in, in this way. We tried to address this a little bit from Scripture over the past three weeks, but anything done to you by a family member, by a friend or a former friend or a coworker or anything that, that leaves you with any kind of feeling of worthlessness or shame or anything like this that uh, occupies space in your mind and heart and weighs you down in some way or another. I want you to think really hard about this. Maybe this is something you're not accustomed to thinking about very much. Sometimes there's sort of a low-grade and subtle feeling of shame that we may carry around that we don't think about often. But try to search uh, your own heart and see if there is something like that or things like that. Maybe it's more than one thing. Maybe it's a combination of sin and guilt from sin in your life and from maybe feelings of being belittled or pushed aside or, uh, or being abused in some way uh, in your own life that leads you to... to carry around some feelings of shame and worthlessness. So what I want to do is consider four images from the Bible. And I want to, I want you to take these four images that I walk through and I want you to apply them to your own shame. I want you to apply them to things you were just thinking about in your own life just now. And I'll give you a moment to do this as we go through it. So here's the first image I want to consider from Scripture. The first image is the the complete and utter removal of sin and shame. So sin and shame removed. 
And one place where this image comes to mind is from, from the, the passage on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Leviticus chapter 16. And I want to take you to about three scriptures for each image here, if you'll bear with me on that. But Leviticus 16, and I want to read verses 20 through 22. Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22. It says, and when he, that is the high priest, this is the day of atonement. Okay, this is the passage of the day of atonement. This is, and I should say, just to give context, the day of atonement happened one day a year. Yom Kippur is the Hebrew term for it, which you may have heard. One day a year, the Jews would celebrate this day of atonement and the high priest and the high priest only would uh, carry out these rituals for the atonement of the people. He would carry out these rituals, rituals at the temple. And here is one of the rituals he would carry out begin in verses 20 through 22. It says, when, and when he, the high priest, has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. In verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So you notice what's happening on this day of atonement is the high priest is placing his hands on the head of this goat and here they're at the, the doorway of the, the temple. He places his hands on the head of the goat and he confesses the sins of Israel. And the imagery is that he is transferring the sins of the people onto the goat. That's what he's doing when he's laying his hands there and confessing their sins. And then after he's finished confessing his sins, he sends the goat away into the wilderness. And the people can watch this, the goat just go off into the distance, into the wilderness. The wilderness was considered to be uh, a place of uh, no more, you might say. A place of uncleanness and demons and a place of no more for the people of Israel. It was uh, the, far, the farthest place from the holiness of the temple. So this was a picture of the sins of Israel being carried away forever never to return again, being uh, removed into the, the wilderness, uh, the place of, of nothingness forever, okay? So you see this is a biblical image of the utter and complete removal of sin. Now along, along with this, I want to consider Psalm 103 verses 11 and 12, Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, and, and think about how this psalm, I think, is an appropriate reflection of what happens there with that goat on the Day of Atonement. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So just like on the Day of Atonement, this goat is bearing all the sins of Israel away into never, never land forever, never to return. So Psalm 103, as, he, as it considers what God does with our sin, as he gives his steadfast love to us, he suggests that as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his steadfast love is, and how high is that? How high are the heavens above the earth? Well, infinitely high, I guess, right? There's no end to it. How far is the east from the west? Again, uh, the imagery here is there's an infinite distance. You could go on forever from east to west. And this is another image or picture. It's the same kind of uh, picture that's being given just with different terms here, a different image. But the idea is that when God removes our transgressions from us, he removes them infinitely high, infinitely away just like the goat going away forever, never to return again. So scripture gives us this picture of the utter and complete removal of our sin. And just to uh, bring this up to its height, what the New Testament suggests to us is that, of course, Jesus is the one who makes this happen. Jesus is, is the ultimate fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who takes away our sins. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb who bears our sins upon him. Jesus is ultimately the goat that when we confess our sins upon him, when we confess our sins to him, we roll our sins onto Jesus and he bears them away into the wilderness never to return again. He bears them away as high as the heavens are above the earth. He bears them away as far as the east is from the west. And I want you to consider the implications of 1 John 1, 9 here with me on this particular reality. 1 John 1, 9. John says, if we confess our sins, just like the high priest is doing in the Day of Atonement, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now think about that with me for a moment. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And of course, this, this kind of thing would raise the question, how could, how could God, if he is just, just forgive sins? How, how can... How can a, a holy and just God do that? Well, in one sense, the answer to that question is he can't just do it. God, if God is holy and just, he never just sweeps sin under, under the rug. He doesn't ever do that, ever. So this is the great dilemma of the universe. How can a holy and just God treat sinners so well? I know sometimes people ask the question in the reverse kind of way. How can bad things happen to good people? But the dilemma of Scripture is how can good things happen to bad people? And this is the dilemma that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 3. Many people have called that passage in Romans 3, verses 19 to 26, the most important paragraph in the Bible. And the reason why many theologians have said that is because Paul is wrestling with his question. How can a holy and just God 
forgive sinners, how can he let sin go like this? How can he say to David after the Bathsheba, Bathsheba incident, I have put away your sin? Regardless of his repentance, how can he do that? And Paul's answer to the question is that God put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins so that God can be both just and at the same time the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God never lets sin go unpunished because he is a just and holy God. He can forgive sinners and be just at the same time only because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the great sacrifice, the great Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The dilemma there that Paul sees is that God passed over sins formerly committed. That's what it says in Romans 3. But he put Christ forward and his cross forward in order to solve that dilemma. The cross of Jesus is the greatest display of the love of God and the grace of God in the history of the world. It's true. But the cross is also the greatest testament to the, to the blackness of sin. If sin were not that bad, then perhaps God would sweep it under the rug. But sin is bad. It is a dishonor to God. It is a damage to God and to humankind. And only the cross of the Son of God could sufficiently take it away. But here's the point I'm making from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God can forgive our sins and still be faithful and just because of the cross of Jesus. But I think John is saying something more than that. And this is very relevant to our shame, okay? What, what he's saying is that if we truly confess our sins to God, then God, and, and hear this, note this, then God would be unfaithful and unjust not to forgive our sins. Why? Because it would dishonor the sacrifice of his precious son to do that. Isn't that life-giving for our shame? If we bring our, our guilt, our shame to God, in this case, we're talking particularly about the guilt and shame that comes from our own sin, and we confess that sin to God, we can know that God bears that sin away forever. Because we've confessed it so greatly? No. But because of the worth of the sacrifice of the only Son of God. So much so that God would be unfaithful and unjust not to bear the sin away. Because, like I said, it would dishonor the worth and the accomplishment of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's like what Paul says in Romans 8. 32, if he did not spare his only son, how will he not also freely give us all things? Again, if he didn't freely give us all things, then he would be dishonoring the worth of the sacrifice of his own son. It's unbelievable. With reference to our guilt and shame, 
sometimes perhaps we carry around guilt and shame because we, we come to God, we confess our sins, and we, we just maybe worry that God is not fully taking away our sin. So what I'm suggesting is this first image of Scripture is making clear to us that God is beautifully taking away our sin and shame. He's cleansing us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins and when he doesn't do so, then it, dis, it would dishonor the worth of his son and, and God is not gonna do that. So when we do confess it and know that, it's, that God is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin and all unrighteousness, then we know that God is bearing it all away never to return again. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. So I want to do something here, okay? This is the part I said that might be a little bit different than what I normally do. I want to take just a moment. I want, I want you to take just a moment here and pray. And I want you to go back to whatever you thought a few moments ago. Is there any kind of guilt or, or shame that you carry around with you, either from your own sin or from something others have done to you that has caused you to carry around some type of shame or feeling of worthlessness or whatever. I'd like for you just to take a moment and pray. And I want you to, as you pray, I want you to imagine yourself taking whatever it is that, that has given you shame. I want you to imagine yourself putting your hands on the goat and transferring that guilt onto the head of that goat. And then I want you to watch that goat run away into the distance in the wilderness forever, bearing your guilt and your shame away forever. I want you also, while you're doing this, to imagine, imagine how high the heavens are above the earth. And I want you to imagine how far the east is from the west. Imagine that they go on forever. And then I want you to imagine that your guilt and your shame are removed from you in Jesus Christ as far as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west. I want you to confess your guilt and your shame and your sin to God. And I want you to imagine the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross on your behalf and I want you to imagine that your sin and shame and guilt is removed infinitely because of the infinite worth of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I want you to recognize that because God is faithful and just, not because you are faithful and just, not because your confession is great, but because God is faithful and just and because Christ has given his own life for your sin. 
I want you to trust that all your sin and shame and guilt is removed. Infinitely removed. All right, I want to give you a second image and I want to continue to do this and if need be, continue to do this as you go from here today. But a second image that scripture gives us on this is of a burden lifted. So the first image we saw was of sin removed, infinitely removed. And now a second image of a burden lifted, of a burden lifted. You know, one of the things that the Bible does from cover to cover is teach us that it teaches us how scandalously free God is in carrying us and our burdens and not entrusting us to carry our burdens. This is the freedom of the gospel. And it's incredibly difficult for us as human beings to not want to carry our own burdens. And, and it's incredibly difficult for us human beings to let God carry our own burdens. And this is true no matter how many years we have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We still go through our lives very often as human beings having trouble trusting our burdens onto God entirely and knowing that God wants to carry our burdens and is carrying our burdens. It's a, bit, it's a bit like the Pilgrim's Progress story, you know, where Pilgrim is carrying his burden and he doesn't have to. He needs to look at the cross and, and God will carry the burden. But let me give you just a few uh, images from Scripture on this point and, and let's try to think about how this applies to shame. Isaiah chapter 46 is one of these places. Isaiah 46 I want to begin, uh, let me read the first four verses of Isaiah 46. He says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, and Bel and Nebo are these idols of the nations. And he says, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary, on weary beasts. So here the imagery of the idols of these peoples are the types of things that have to be carried. <laughs> uh, they, these gods have to be carried. So they, they get these beasts of burden and they, they lift these idols onto the backs of these beasts of burdens and, they, and these beasts carry them, right? These gods have to be carried in this kind of way. Verse two says, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Now here's the contrast with the true God. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me. Notice the difference between the God of Israel and the idols of the nations. Listen, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb 
even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. So God is setting up the contrast here. The idols of the nations, the gods of the nations have to be carried. The God of Israel, he does the carrying. And how much of the carrying does he do? All of it. This, his carrying starts before birth, doesn't it? So the child he speaks about is not doing any of the carrying. And, and when does God stop the carrying? Never. It's, it's all the way to the end. So life in God is a life where we're not carrying him, but he is carrying us. We're not bearing our burdens. We should not be bearing our burdens. We should be rolling our burdens onto him. Let me give you a, a, a passage from the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Or some translations say, casting all your burdens on him, because he cares for you. So this is a picture of the gospel. It is part of humbling ourselves under his mighty hand is letting him carry our burdens. That seems strange, doesn't it? The, the gospel often does subvert the wisdom of this world. Usually, when you humble yourself before others, you serve them, you carry their stuff. But that's not the way it is with God and his gospel. In this gospel, to humble yourself before God means to let him carry your stuff, <laughs> Right? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So just what Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah 46 was saying to us. So when it comes to our guilt and shame, what the gospel is saying to us is you take that burden of guilt and shame that you have, whether that's shame from internal uh, actions or external things that have happened to you, whatever that burden, whatever the anxiety is, and recognize that God intends to carry that burden, to take that burden. He doesn't intend for you to carry it at all, not at any point in time. So take that shame and cast it on Him. Cast the burden on him. And I think Jesus also would say uh, something similar to us like what he does in Matthew 11. The imagery is a little bit different, but I think the idea is the same. Uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. So you've got these burdens on you, whatever they may be, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So again, Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head here. So again, the second Im image to think about from Scripture, and I think this is an image that captures the trajectory of Scripture from start to finish, is that 
these burdens of shame and guilt that we carry are not meant to be carried by us. There's a scandalous freedom to the way that God comes to us by his grace and says, I'm carrying you. I'm carrying your burdens. Don't carry this burden. I'm here saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden from your burdens, and cast those burdens on me. Cast those anxieties on me. Cast the guilt and shame on me because I carry you from the cradle to the grave. You don't carry me. This gospel is not a burden. This gospel is freedom from shame because he carries it, okay? Let's do this, let's do this quickly as well. So take, let's take just a moment. I want you to pray again. I want you to, to again think about the guilt and shame, whatever it is that you thought about earlier. And I want you to imagine yourself taking that burden, whatever it is, and, I, and imagine rolling it off onto God. Cast that anxiety and that burden onto him. And I want you to trust what God has said in Isaiah 46 right now. You don't carry me. That's what happens with the false gods. You don't carry my burdens. That's what happens with false gods. That's what happens with false shame, even. You roll that burden onto me, I will carry it. Okay, image number three. And by the way, I just think this is a helpful way for us to engage our shame. Let's, let's take these biblical images and learn to climb inside of them and apply them to ourselves from God's Word. Live in them. Not just think about them, but apply them. So the third image I want you to consider from Scripture is the acceptance of the Father. The acceptance of a Father. So we have sin removed infinitely, we have burden lifted, and we have the acceptance of a father. You know, I'm fond of, of thinking about this um, baptism of Jesus with reference to this kind of thing, and so you may have heard me talk about this a number of times before. Uh, that's okay, but I want to mention it once again. Because I think the baptism of Jesus does provide an illustration to us of the way God interacts with us. He's a father to us and we are his children. So when Jesus was baptized, uh, he, this is before he starts his public ministry, as, as we've talked about before. He has not carried out any of the great things that we think about when we think of the ministry of Jesus. He has yet to... Uh, multiply loaves and fishes to feed the crowds. He has yet to walk on water. He has yet to calm the storms by the word of his mouth. He has yet to cast out demons. He has yet to heal lepers and blind uh, people. He has yet to raise Lazarus from the dead. He has yet to do any of this. Up to this point, for, he has, for all we know, just lived a life of obscurity with his family uh, 
and been a normal, ordinary man in Israel. Has not done anything great yet. When he comes up out of the water from his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now this, these words have significance in many ways, okay? These words are allusions, I think, to some Old Testament passages that confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 in particular. In that little short statement, God is alluding to those two passages in order to suggest that he is giving a coronation to Jesus as the king of Israel, okay? But notice what the words are saying. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And as we've said, this is before Jesus has done any part of his public ministry. And so one point I think we can gather from this is that Jesus now begins his public ministry not in order to gain the love of his father, not in order to gain the acceptance of his father. He, he engages in his public ministry out of the overflow of his confidence in the love of the father that has already been declared and, and given to him. And what I'm suggesting is, and I'm not saying what I'm suggesting, but what the New Testament is suggesting from over and over is that as we trust Jesus Christ by faith, we become united to Jesus. We just finished the class on union with Christ recently in Cornerstone U. The, the reality is that when we are in Christ, then all that is Christ's becomes ours. Might feel shocking to say that. We're joint heirs with Christ. We, Paul can say, we right now have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we are seated with Christ by virtue of our union with him. We are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. United with him in a death like his so that our sinful self has been crucified with him. United with him in a resurrection like his so that we live a resurrection life in him and everything in between. So the point I'm making here is that when the father declares to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we become adopted children of the father. Full children of the Father. And so the Father says this to us as well. Before we enter into life and ministry or whatever it is that we do, we don't, well I should say, we don't enter into life and ministry in order to gain the love of the Father or to gain the acceptance of the Father. What we do by virtue of being in Jesus Christ is we hear the Father saying to us, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now ladies, I don't want you to be offended by being called my beloved Son. That makes you a full inheritor. And man, we won't be offended either by being called the bride of Christ. Uh, these images are meant to convey full inheritance uh, as sons, like, like what happened in... Israel, when, when you hear this in Scripture. Um, but the point I'm making is that we have the acceptance of the Father prior to and apart from our accomplishments or lack thereof. By virtue of being joined to Jesus, the Father is saying to us, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. 
or put or let's think about the son, the story of the prodigal son for just a moment. Here, the prodigal son has reason to be ashamed, doesn't he? He has he has brought shame upon his father by basically saying to him, "I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance now, so that I can take the inheritance and leave you." That's basically what he's saying. This was a shameful act, sinful act. He goes away, he takes the inheritance of his father, and he spends it on wild, loose, prodigal sin. So more reason to have guilt and shame. He comes to his senses one day and thinks, well, a life of a servant in my father's house is much better than one I'm living. And so he's going to go back to his father. I don't know how much what Jesus describes there is real repentance. It may be very little of real repentance. It may just be, look, I'm eating slop with pigs and my, ser- the, my father's servants live better than this, you know? Uh, I don't think it's a story about the sufficiency of his repentance because you know in the story that what his father does when he sees the son coming is not wait for his son to give an explanation. And when his father comes here, he doesn't scold his son. Instead, what he does is he runs, he runs to his son, he throws his arms around his son, he puts his own robe around his son, symbol that all that a father has is his. He puts his own ring on his finger, again, the ring that is his signet, which is another symbol that all that I have is yours, right? And he throws a party for his son, embraces the son. So again, this is a picture I think we need to bring to the table when we're thinking about our our shame and guilt that we have. How does the father interact with us on this? If we are his children in Christ, is it a scolding father? Is it a father who only delights in us when we give a proper explanation for our actions and all this? Well, I think this story indicates that it's a father who so delights in lavishing his fatherly love on prodigals who have come to him in Jesus Christ. So that picture of the father there is the way we should picture the father in relation to us. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased prior to and apart from your accomplishments. You're a child of God. That passage I read from Psalm 103 earlier about how God removes our sin as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. The very next verse, Psalm 103, 13, after saying that, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And I love this because you see the, what the gospel is doing in our lives is not simply providing a way to remove our sins, but it's, it's bringing us as children to a father. It does remove our sins infinitely, but God could completely remove our sins but not bring us into his family and be a loving father to us, right? We don't have to settle for just the removal of sins. This gospel takes us 
from our sin and removing that sin to being children of a father who has compassion on us. And Paul says in Romans 8, and this is the last passage I want to mention on this particular point. Romans 8, this is a striking passage. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not the way we encounter God. Not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And listen to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this has, this has incredible implications for our shame because we, we come to a God who has infinitely removed our sins. We come to a God who completely lifts our burden and carries it on our behalf. And we come to a God who has adopted us as children into his family. And by his spirit, he is bearing witness with our spirit that we are his children. He's coming by his spirit to say to us, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You are not marked by your shame. You are marked as my child. And that's what his spirit is doing, is bearing witness with our spirit. You are my son. You are my child. Call out to me, Abba, Father. Enjoy this life of being my child. Think of yourself as in that story of the prodigal son. That's what you should be doing. This thing that we're doing periodically now where we take a moment to try to put ourselves in that story, that's what Jesus is trying to get us to do. Think of yourself like that prodigal son. Put yourself in that. Is that the way you think about the Father and how the Father in heaven responds to you? If not, then your picture of God is not accurate. Your picture of the way God engages with your shame is not accurate. So I want you to do that. Now, let me just say one last thing here for the sake of time. Um... So I've said one image is the complete and utter removal of sin. One image is the burden completely lifted from a God who carries our burdens. This image is of a father's acceptance. And and, and it would really be good to take time to do that. Take more than just a minute that I've given on these things to soak in this reality. Put yourself in that prodigal son story. Stop and consider that the spirit is, is... a spirit of adoption to you and call out to God as as your father and know that he's bearing witness with your spirit that he's a child. But a final image that scripture gives us, I think, is that God gives us a seat at the table, a seat at the feast, no matter what we come from. And uh, because uh, because we're late in time, let me just mention uh, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, gives this picture of a feast where God removes... God removes the covering from all peoples. This is so incredible because it's as if God is is saying, uh, I'm taking the shame, the guilt, whatever it is, the burden from all peoples. I'm lifting that off and I'm providing a feast. I'm inviting all these people to my feast to come to my table and enjoy this thing with their, their shame lifted and removed. If you read Luke chapter 14, uh, I would encourage you to read this passage as well. This is a passage where Jesus relentlessly speaks about how what God is doing 
is going out into the highways and byways and the hedges, inviting all the crippled, the lame, the poor, everyone who would have the, the shame who will come, come have a seat at the table of God here. And then, you know what's fascinating about that is that's in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 15 is the prodigal son story. And the way that it opens, and I've got to at least tell you this, the way that Luke 15 opens is like this. So we've just come out of that, that, those parables of Jesus inviting all the poor to the table of God. Verse, or chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, eating with someone was a, a very strong form of acceptance or at least of not shaming others in that culture, right? So what these Pharisees are noticing is that Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. He's welcoming people of shame and eating with them, inviting them to his table. And that's a, that is a physical picture of what he had just been describing in his parables in chapter 14 and what he's trying to further describe by the, the prodigal son story. And it's what God is saying to us. No matter where you've come from, no matter what your shame is, I'm inviting you to my table. If you receive all that I have given in Jesus Christ, God is saying, I'm inviting you to my feast. And of course, at the end of time, there's this great wedding feast in Revelation chapter 19. And the Lord's Supper that we celebrate is meant to be a foretaste of that reality. It, the Lord's Supper is Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9 happening in our midst. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the final feast, marriage supper of the Lamb of the Kingdom. So when we take the Lord's Supper, what we do is we say, uh, this is a God who removes my shame and invites me to have a seat at his table and he eats with me and he welcomes me and uh, I am communing with him. It's a, it's a place to leave the, the shame aside and be welcomed by this God who invites us to his table. So I would, I would encourage you, if you are prone to be weighed down with shame, either through your own sin and guilt. Of course, repentance would be in order for ongoing sin. But if you're prone to be weighed down by, by shame and guilt, either through your own sin, past sin perhaps, that, that you have trouble letting go or letting God take, um, then take more time to place yourself inside these biblical images and realize what God is doing, infinitely removing sin, lifting your burden and carrying it, accepting you as a father to a son and inviting you to have a seat at his table. And this is the way he frees us from our shame, either internal shame or external from what has been done to us. Okay. Anyone have questions, comments? thoughts as we close. All right. Well, I'd love to speak further if anyone would have anything further, but let me close this. Thank you for being here these few weeks, and I pray and hope that these things have been helpful to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
freeing us from shame. Thank you for bringing us a gospel that infinitely removes our sin. It's born all away, completely away in Christ Jesus. And thank you for lifting our burden and carrying it. Lord, help us not to bear the burdens that you do not intend for us to bear. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and cast our burdens on you because you care for us and you carry us from the cradle to the grave. We don't carry you and we don't carry our burdens when we're free in Jesus Christ. Help us as well, Lord, to know that you are a father who delights in your children. You've given us your spirit of adoption and we cry out to you, Abba, Father. And you bear witness by your spirit that we are your children. Lord, help us to find the freedom of that and to enjoy that and to know that, to experience being your children and not carry around our shame in such a way where we are free in you as your children. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a seat at your table so that we can commune with you. You have called us in from every kind of prodigal way of life by your grace. You've lifted our shame and we can commune with you. We can dine with you and we'll do that forever. Help us, Lord, to see that, to know it, to enjoy it and to find freedom from our shame in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.